So for today, just go ahead and bump elbows with your neighbor. Let's pray. God, we are praying. Lord, we do pray. Save us from the insanity. Uh, God, help our lives become a testimony, a supplement to all the stupidity that's out there. God, we've got to, somebody's got to be stable. Somebody's got to have the truth. Somebody's got to show people the way. Somebody's got to take God and the Word of God and Jesus and get them to other people this time in this season of the year. Lord, use us. And Lord, we pray the things we'll see today and over these next three Sundays. Lord, you will build them into our lives. Help us glorify you. We ask, him in, ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated in the Lord's presence. You know, I started off my ministry as a college and career pastor for almost 15 years. So over a decade of time working with college students and in university settings, academic settings with international students. And also for the last two decades, I have been involved with elementary and secondary education in the state of Missouri, another academic setting. And so what I'm going to talk about today comes from maybe a little bit of an academic approach because of that background. And I understand that I'm walking a tightrope here because a lot of the older people are going to say, you know, listen to somewhat of what I'm going to say and you're going to say, Alan, I'm, I'm too old for this. Well, I ain't preaching to you then. I ain't preaching to you. I'm preaching then to the college kids and the younger kids. Somebody has to tell them, how did we get in the mess we are in and how can we get out of here? Somebody got to do it. So I'm going to take that on. Um, It was into this idea of how our general society has completely stopped teaching character because character implies morals. And morality means there's a God. And having a God means you will be judged. And ain't nobody going down for that. So you as parents, grandparents, and we as the church, as a church, we are the only ones left to teach the value of Bible virtues and instill them into your kids. So this season, I want to show you an example of what I mean by teaching character qualities for Christians. And in this case, the character I chose, not, not one that you might expect. It's not uh, Jesus. It's not Joseph. It's not even John. It is Jacob. And Jacob is maybe one of the least virtuous of any of the patriarchs of Israel, and yet lessons from the life of Jacob, teach us about the Holy Spirit's discipleship for character development in the Christian. So when you get saved by being born again, John 1.12 states that you become a son of God. But when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it will not be as a sinner, and it won't just be as a son, it will be as a son who is tasked to serve so is, it is the judgment of a servant who is a steward, Romans 14, verses 4 and 10. Now that means you won't be punished because it's not a judgment on your sins, but you will only be rewarded for building with materials that Paul says are gold, silver, and precious stones, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. Now without going into all the details of that today, I just need you to know 
that precious stones represent the changes in personality that you make in this life to conform you to the image of Christ. Jesus is our good shepherd. You know, sheep have to be shepherded because they do not know how to find sustenance, shelter, or safety for themselves. Therefore, sheep wander because they do not know the way unless they are following the master. So the question naturally arises, perhaps from each one of us, Jesus, why are you leading me? Not beside green pastures and still waters, Psalm 23, 2. Why am I journeying through the valley of the shadow of death where evil is present in mine enemies? What we see in Jacob is the gift that God gives you when he leads you through that type of pain to produce gemstones of precious character for the king. How many of you in here ever took psychology? You ever had a class in psychology? Psychology class, college, high school. How many, uh, how many of you ever passed? <laughs> how many of you stayed awake? How many of you did not cut the class? Or maybe you at least took some counseling classes in school. What they did not teach you is the truth from biblical psychology. Because the Bible says you are a trinity just like God is. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and the very God of peace sanctify you holy. Okay, what is this holistic sanctification that I can get? What does that mean? And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. So before you get saved, your soul and spirit constitute what Paul calls the old man inside of you. And that's all you know. Romans 6.6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So the inherent propensity to sin resides in your body. That power is destroyed as you do three things in this life. First, as we saw in verse 6, you must know that getting saved crucified your old man. Second, you must mortify what is crucified by reckoning that to be so. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And third, you must then actively yield to God intentionally and overcome the old life. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members, that's of your physical body, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves, soul and spirit, unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So the Christian life is an exchange life because it redeems all three parts of your humanity and your psychology, and it makes you fully human. You, the soul, are now in Christ. The Holy Spirit is now in your spirit, 
answering to the word of God followed by your body. So the question on the floor today is, can the spirit in my soul get my body under control? Hello, somebody. To get the answer, you need to understand that when you get saved, you partake of God's divine nature. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. But you still have your old man, your old nature, sold under sin, Romans seven fourteen, And that means that every single believer has both an old man who's been crucified but not fully mortified and a new man who is the new person in Christ Jesus. So we think we're just one person. We think we are just who we are. And we think we've got to look inside us. And what we find inside us, well, that's the truth. And that's what we ought to do. But Paul says that ye have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So you've got to be mortifying the old man. You've got to be renewing the new man. And he stays new because of the knowledge of God's word which conforms you to Christ's image. So the lost image of God, the the image that Adam lost in the fall, is now restored in you. So after you let God deal with your sins on the cross, then God starts dealing with the sin nature still resident in your life. And that means that all Christian growth, all true spirituality is just the value of Bible virtues and character development into Christ-likeness. I think so. Because the more you know by applying Scripture, the more you grow into the image of Christ. So you can see why. We are the only ones who have the answer for the suffering happening in our society. The answer for the suffering in our schools, we're the only ones. You want to be a superhero? Do this. We have the answer to the mental health crisis. We have the answer for stability in society. We need to wake up and be about it, not just talk about it. Can you see how off base we have become in America? I mean, as the New Romans, we're centered on two things, our own self and the idolization of human reason as the answer. Consequently, everything in the social-emotional learning core curriculum in the state of Missouri is George Frederick Hegel applied to your modern problems. How many of you took a philosophy class? College, you took philosophy class? How many of you stayed awake? How many actually didn't cut and you you pass? How many of you ever heard of George Frederick Hegel? Hegel's Hegel's dialectical thought, dialectical view of history. I mean, normally we associate that with Marxism, communism. Uh, But it is all Americanism, really, today. We we apply that. And so so what has happened was, and I'm not saying that, um, I'm I'm not saying that, I'm going to go old school on you today, but I'm going to take you to school, and you're going to get smarter. And I'm also not saying that SEL, uh, that DESE has put out in the core curriculum of Missouri schools is bad. I am saying is woefully deficient, and that 
is why every Christian who is a public school teacher has the chance from their life to supplement what is deficient. That's why I work. That's why I'm happy to volunteer my time to work in public education. Hegel said that the highest good was the unity of life. Meaning, me, we, and nature. The highest good offered in the SEL curriculum is me, we, and others. Obviously, the state believes we're missing something in our schools. And that is why we've got to try and do something uh, to, to get our citizenry to the place it should be. And educators have long said the same thing as Hegel about reaching that highest good. I mean, even, even he recognized that because of human nature, that goal is unobtainable. And I don't think you caught this whenever you were taught pop philosophy in college. But whenever scholars run up against the waking reality of God's truth, their response is always to redefine their terms. Now, that is true with transgender ideology. That's true with counseling philosophy. That's true with doctrinal heresy. Are you enlightened yet? Since the unity of life is impossible due to our fallen nature and the need for God's redemption, what Hegel advocates is unity in difference. And he grounds that on what he calls universal reason. Why? Because the Greeks always seek after wisdom. They never seek after God. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23. Now that's the whole basis for our modern way of thinking, which is a dialectical way of thinking. And this is not above you. I'm not speaking above your head. It's not above you to understand because this is Star Wars. You already understand this because this is Star Wars philosophy. Star Wars philosophy says there's only dualism. There is not good and bad. There's not right and wrong because we cannot admit morals because then that admits a God who's going to judge you. Therefore, there is only dark and light. And it's all part of the same force. It is all part of me, we, and nature. So what we taught you to do from a child is to perform your own personal values clarification. And you perform values clarification in order to come to your own truth. So there is subject and object. There is dark and light. And you use your reason and your critical thinking skills as wisdom to guide you to synthesize those things dialectically into a higher enlightened truth that you're able to proclaim as reality for you. Why? Because Hegel arrogantly declares that the truth is only in the whole. It's not that light is true and dark is false. No, the truth is only in the whole thing and you spin a spiral never landing at certainty. So for Hegel, history progresses as a dialectical process, which means there's no purpose to history and there is no point to your life. What else can a lost man say? So it is never either or, it is never one or the other. 
But truth is only found in your own human judgment about the whole as you spiral through it in the moment so even that truth changes over time. Now turn to Genesis chapter 25. Hegel said that searching for an existential and external objective absolute and authoritative criterion of truth was a fool's errand. Don't do it. Well, welcome to someone who is a fool for Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10. So all I'm trying to say is that God did not patch up your old man. He crucified him outright. God is, when I say there are two natures in the believer, that does not mean there's a dualism. There's, that means there's one you need to kill. There is one you need to mortify over time. So God indwells you in order to empower you as the Spirit of God answers to the Word of God to do the work of God in your life. I think so. All of that to say that you must let God change your way of thinking so that the Spirit can change your personality to make Christ-likeness your way of living. So we're about to learn from Jacob how to make a gift of precious gemstones for our king as our gift to him this Christmas. Genesis uh, 25 verse 21 says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him and and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So they were twins, but there's nothing identical about these two. I mean, that is what confused George Hegel, George Lucas, and all the Hindus and Buddhists. Because in the flesh, there's always a dualism. They're two manner of people. And since one cannot be loved and the other hated, then unity can only be had within that diversity. So society says you have to come to the best unity indifference that your reason can surmise without ever resolving the dualism into right or wrong. Do not question nature. Do not pray. Do not... Do not entreat God, do not inquire of him and ask a God anything outside of natural science. And this mistake is completely understandable because that is the best a lost man can do on a good day. But every Bible believer knows every problem you have is just a call to prayer. I think so. Every problem is a call to prayer. Now, they will not teach, that is not part of the core curriculum in our school. That ought to be part of the core curriculum in our church as we work with your kids. So Isaac entreated the Lord. Rebecca inquired of the Lord for an answer. Verse 24, and when her days, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau because that means hairy. Not, not H-A-R-R-Y. And after that came his brother out and took his, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. 
Jacob, his name means he will take the lead by tripping you up. He will unseat you and oust you. He will displace you and replace you. He will deceive you and then depose you and supersede you. And God told his mother, so Jacob knew from her that he was going to rule over his older brother, even though he was the younger and Esau was the stronger. So Jacob took it upon himself in the natural man to achieve God's purpose like Hegel and like Sel without prayer and without faith in God's grace. So Jacob was not Esau. I mean, Esau was a rebel. But Jacob used human means to try and get God's will to be done in his life. So in our current cultural climate, I am sure it is a shock for me to tell you that God not only hates your sins, God has no room for your old man. And he can't. Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't believe he has the Bible, doesn't believe the Bible's the Word of God, doesn't believe the King James Bible. Is God's words in English? For they are, that's foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So God's honest truth is foolishness to humanity's idolized reason. And until you are a spiritual human, by having the Holy Spirit and being born again, you cannot even know what God's talking about. So what had happened was, many Christians today forget that they are saved by grace. They forget that it's all grace through faith, and so they turn spirituality into law and into legalism. They turn spirituality into a standard that they can keep, And therefore, they think they're righteous. And we are taught as a child by human or American nature that we are strong. We're the new Edom. We're the new Romans. We're able to think, plan, and do. I mean, as long as we never quit, we can do anything we can dream. God be damned. So God's dealings with you as a believer are designed to bring you to the same place that Jacob faced at the river Jabbok, where he wrestled with God and then lived to limp about it. So the precious gemstones of Christ-like character are only produced when life pressure brings you to a place of brokenness. And you will understand that as we enter this Christmas season. I mean, things go the worst at the holiday time. Am I right about it? Things are always a mess. Whether it's finances, marriage, spouse, relationship, people, kids, job, car, whatever the case may be. But if you will understand that, then the devil will not be able to assault you with hopelessness, despair, and even suicidal thinking. So there is a twofold responsibility here. God's part... And your part, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. God's part, nevertheless, I live my part, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, God's part, and the life which I now live in the flesh, my part, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you must do exactly what only the King James Bible says in English. No other modern translation, including the New King James 
translates the Greek correctly, no matter what they say about being more accurate. You do not live by your faith in Christ because that is still the natural man. You live by the faith of Christ, Romans 3.22, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.22, Philippians 3.9. And, and none of the new translations translate those verses correctly either for the simple reason that the translators do not understand this, apparently. But what that means is, since your old man is crucified in Christ, you must live from the life of Christ in you in order for the old man to be progressively incapacitated. you got to put on the new man. The new man you are putting on is Jesus. And that is why you were saved by your faith in him, but you are only sanctified by the faith of Christ. Watch Ephesians 4, 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the former way that you related to me, we, and nature, put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, that's the flesh, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that's the spirit, and put you on the new man that's in your soul, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So step by step, the Spirit answers to the Word of God in your life, weakening that person that you used to be and revealing the new life and the new man that you are in Jesus Christ. It's simple personality transformation, just like Paul says, Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I mean, God is so merciful to allow you this way out. You need to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Since your old man's crucified in Christ, then bring your bodily members along, which then makes your body wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, personality transformation, changing your fundamental character, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this Sunday is really you know, only an introduction into a character study of Jacob. But what I want you to get before you go is how to make a gift of precious gemstones for the king this Christmas. In the Bible, gold is a picture in Bible type of God and the word of God that proceeds from the Father. Silver is the redemption price presented in the Son and precious stones are the work of the discipline of the Holy Spirit to build you into his temple just like Jesus Christ was. Why? Because stones are not elements like gold and silver. They are compounds that are formed over time. Gemstones are formed by fire, and then they're cut, and then they're polished. And that is the picture of the Spirit of God answering to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit forming you through pressure into the image of Christ. Okay, let me make it practical. This ain't preaching if I haven't made it practical. Have you ever considered what your anxiety is supposed to produce? Have you ever considered what your anxiety is supposed to produce? 
Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Because that same war is going on inside of your soul, and overcoming is only accomplished when you understand this generational war between Jacob and Esau with his grandson Amalek, as we'll see in Exodus 17. Here in Genesis 25, verse 30, says that Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, because that means red one. God created the first human and called him Adam, similar to Edom, because he was made of the dust of the ground, and that was red clay. So what, what color was Adam? Well, he wasn't black or white. Secondly, just like us in our first birth, our physical birth, Esau was born a loser. God already prophesied how even though he was older and stronger, he would serve his younger brother, and Jesus confirmed. John 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So the flesh and physical life always come first before the spiritual. You were born before you ever get born again. We're born in the flesh. We've got to be born again spiritually. So spiritual life does not arrive on the scene until your second birth. Genesis 25, verse 31, And Jacob said, Sell me, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? I'm only looking at things in this life. And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised what was eternal. He despised what was going to go past his life. He despised his birthright. I mean, that's crazy. As soon as you get saved, you're born again. You're given a birthright into eternity. But he's mastered by his appetite. His God is his belly. God is comparing Esau and Adam, and he's contrasting Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is a man of the field and the fold because he's a shepherd. And Esau, he's got a killer instinct because he's a hunter. Jacob's passion is to protect and guard the flock. Esau is a man's man. He's got hair on his chest. Esau's instinct is to kill, destroy, and mind earthly things. So Paul says to our earliest believers and to us, he says, look diligently, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Esau is profane. That means he allowed himself to become unholy, unset apart for God's mission, inaccessible to the blessings of God. Why? Because he despised his birthright, which included eternal things. So he traded the eternal for the temporal. He sacrificed the permanent on the altar of the immediate. 
He was mastered by his appetite and fulfills the picture in Bible type of walking after the flesh, Romans 8. And while Jacob may have acted in deception in order to get Isaac's blessing after Esau had bartered to him the birthright, at least he wanted it. So God overlooked Jacob's deeds. God saw Jacob's desires. Jacob, weak and faulty as as he was, desired the things of God. So Romans 9.13 says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Because this prophecy is not about two individuals. On one level, is it, about, it is about two nations which come from these two men. On another level, is it, about, it is about the two natures at war within the believer. And because Jacob overcame through wrestling for the blessing and not letting go, the Holy Spirit turned him into a prince. Genesis 32, 28. And prince means someday you will be crowned. Now turn to Exodus 17. Genesis 25 is just the origin story. It shows us how this war begins. I mean, just like Star Wars, the Marvel Universe, you got to go back to the origin story. But doctrinally, it is a picture in Bible type. And Exodus 17 is a picture of how to become an overcomer in your own war against the flesh. Overcoming in the war of the spirit against the flesh, in the war between your new nature in Christ and your old nature from Adam, in the war between who you were first born and who you are born again. What happens next in this drama? Look at verse 8. Then came Amalek. And fought with Israel and Rephidim. Here the children is Israel. They're on their way to the promised land. Canaan. The promised land is a picture and Bible type of the spirit-filled life, of the fullness in Christ. I mean, they just came out of Egypt. That is a picture and Bible type of the world. They got saved at the Red Sea. They are on their way to Canaan land. And at that moment, Amalek comes out to fight them. In the valley of Rephidim. And Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Genesis 36, 12. So this is a picture of that generational battle between the spirit and the flesh. The two natures in the believer. And the battle that we have for our kids. And we cannot settle for truth in the whole. Or truth in our own nature. Because we must defeat darkness for the sake of our children. For Israel, it was national. For us, it's generational. So verse 9, Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out fight with Amalek. Amalek says, you may, you may have escaped Egypt. And I know you just got saved. But you're not going to enter Canaan and walk in the Spirit. It is the devil saying, I may not be able to drag you back down to hell with me, but I'm going to keep you here bound in the flesh and being just like Esau. I know you're a Jacob, but I'm not going to let you become an Israel against me without a fight. Yet they did overcome and they did enter Canaan. And the way that God gave them the victory over the flesh is the same way that he gives you victory today, tomorrow, and next week. 
And this is what produces our gift of precious gemstones for the king. Jesus won the war, but how do you overcome in your own personal battles? I'm going to show you from your Bible how to have victory over the flesh, how to walk in the spirit, how to have the blessings of God that he wants for you and your family and this church. Anybody want to hear this? Just say, bedazzle me, Alan. I'll even take silence as consent because diamonds are a believer's best friend. And so first off, I need you to know this. Number one, victory in the valley has to be won on the mountain. Verse, verse nine, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. Moses goes to the mountaintop. He gets the perspective you can only see by detaching yourself from the fight and overlooking so that you can overcome. You will not overcome what you do not oversee by looking at it from God's perspective. Then second, on the other hand, victory in, in the valley is found through exalting the rod of God. Verse 9, and I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. Now in the Bible, that rod stands for a scepter to represent authority, to rule and possess, an instrument of chastisement and discipline, and it is a Bible type of the Word of God. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, God is magnifying His Word above His name. That means above El, above Jehovah, above Adonai, and every compound thereof. So when you lift up God's Word in your life, that is what the Spirit answers to with power. You say, Alan, that sounds so mystical. How does that really work? Well, watch, watch, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said, and said to him and fought with Amalek. That's our part. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill and it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he set down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And this is the way of victory and this is how you overcome. You want to stop the sins of the flesh, then concentrate on the word of God. Raise the rod of God and magnify his word in your life. And then even if your sin is so bad, it is calling down demonic involvement. If your consistent every time response is to get into the word of God and study it after you sin, then that devilment will stop. It has to because their goal is not to get you into your King James Bible. You remember how Moses' rod became the rod of God in, a, in Exodus 4? It was after he threw it on the ground and he let the snake out. I mean, he threw it on the ground and the snake came out. Because while Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's also a serpent up on a pole, Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. And he will become a serpent to all your snakes so that he can swallow them whole, Exodus 7, verses 10 to 12. There on your handout, Genesis 32, verse 24 says, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince... Thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Why are you not overcoming the flesh? 
I mean, all you got to do is walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And you notice that verse does not say, stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and then you will be able to walk in the Spirit. No, baby Baba. No, baby Yoda. It says, walk in the Spirit in order to keep from fulfilling the flesh's lusts. So do not favor Esau, though he is tall, dark, and talented. Be like Jacob. Take your weakness to God. Wrestle with him until he gives you the blessing. So third, you can overcome all the way until the battle is won. Back in Exodus 17, <coughs> verse 12 says, But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone put put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The Lord said unto Moses, with the, uh, uh, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. What am I supposed to write about this? Well, you know, since you fought and you discomfited him, then, then that was your part. Here's what I'm going to do. I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah our banner, the Jehovah our war flag. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God says, one day I will utterly destroy the flesh when I catch away your body in the rapture and raise a hallelujah. And in that moment, the twinkling of the eye, I will give you a glorified body. Or when I raise it from the grave, that is going to be such a victory. You will not even remember what it was like to have sin dwelling in your flesh anymore. But until that moment, I want the flesh mortified. I want it discomfited. I want it put to death. I don't want you making peace with it. I don't want you, I don't want you to find truth in the whole, in, in the everything, in the diversity, in letting it live. No, I want, I want you to go with the light. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the way. I want you to walk this path. I wonder if you even see yourself as having the Esau nature inside, that which is born first, that which is so self-sufficient, the natural man of nature, that me, we, are all taught and trained to appeal to for a higher good unity with darkness. But I need you to know that your efficiency without God's sufficiency is just deficiency. Hello, somebody. Aren't you sick and tired of the spiritual rat race? Don't you want the peaceable fruit of the Spirit in all goodness and righteousness and truth, Ephesians 5.9. God gives you his spirit and his word so you can disengage from the valley, climb the hill, exalt his word, and keep wrestling for the blessing. Hebrews 5.11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. God touches the hollow of your thigh right where your strength is. Who can win a wrestling match if the thigh's out of joint? 
It's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Your grievous suffering, your personal anxiety, it can produce the fruit of peace, spontaneous fruit, fruit born by the Spirit, answering to the Word of God in your life. Because in our final point for study, victory is simply the fruit of the Spirit replacing the sins of the flesh. God did not improve Jacob. He touched his flesh and weakened him. God did not improve Peter. He touched his pride and weakened him. And God's purpose for you is not just the golden blessings that flow from Father Abraham or the silver gift of salvation pictured in Isaac, God's desire for you is the precious gemstones of character that we see formed in Jacob. That is what made him a prince waiting to be crowned because that is our birthright. One day to be crowned, we can lose it. We can lose the inheritance. We can lose the crowns. Do not, do not be an Esau. God looked beyond Jacob's deeds, saw his desires, and 1 Peter 4, 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Once Christ comes in your life, from that point on, a battle rages on the inside. I mean, it's not just that so you've got a target on your back from the devil and seems like everybody else on the outside. No, a battle rages inside you. A battle between your old nature, which is dominated by your flesh, and your new nature, which is liberated by God's Spirit. And the secret to victory is letting the Spirit answer to God's Word so that the Word of God does the work, because you can't. you got to live by the faith of Christ. But let me back it up a step and ask you a very important question. Are you still in Adam or are you in Christ? Have you only been born once or are you born again? Give your life to Christ today. If for no other reason than he can do more with it than you can. He has a purpose for your soul in his eternity. Claim that today by faith. And you can trust him for victory over everything else. All you got to do is pray. Just your heart to God, knowing that he hears. Nobody else can do this for you because this is an exchange of life. It is a transaction that you've got to make with Jesus Christ on your own. But just pray, pray and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. Man, I'm a better Esau than Esau ever was. But today you have shown me a vision of Jesus dying for me. He suffered in the flesh. He suffered for me. He bled because of my sins. So that he could save me and redeem me and give me everlasting life. If I just put my trust in him. I want that life right now. I want that life that is in Jesus. So today, right now, I'm telling you, God, I take Jesus as my Lord. Save me for Jesus' sake. 
God, give me this victory no matter what else I never get. No matter what else I never get in this life, give me this victory. Give me this birthright. Put me in Christ and the Holy Spirit in me and make me born again. Hear Jesus. I give you my life. While the praise team sings or during the song or as soon as they get done, come here to the front and let us know if you prayed like that. I want to give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers. Maybe you just need prayer today. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, or pray over you. That's what we want to do. Come up and let us know.